tonight we are wrapping up our series, uh, Miracles and Their Meaning. Tonight we're going to be in John chapter 21, if you have your Bibles. And um, at the risk of sounding um, like I'm beating a dead horse, let me just remind us all that when John talks about these eight dynamic miracles, uh, throughout his gospel, he's really talking about not just miracles, but the word that he uses means a sign. And he's basically saying that all these miracles that Jesus does, they're pointing to something greater than just what they are. The, what John is trying to say, he's trying to say, we can't get too caught up in what's being done. We've got to be caught up in who he is. And um, tonight as we wrap up this eighth and final miracle, we will see the divinity of Jesus uh, in a powerful way. If you have ADHD or ADD or anything like that, you are going to be a-okay tonight because we are going to ping and pong all over the place tonight, but I'm going to try to keep us on a certain track and uh, we're going to be good. We're going to be good for it. Again, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 21 or you have your notes there. Let me give you a little bit of context. Up to this point, all of the miracles that Jesus has accomplished, he has done in his earthly life. So up to this point, Jesus has been born of a virgin. He has lived a sinless life. He has um, fulfilled his purpose and ministry on the earth. He has suffered a criminal's death for us on the cross. He has been in the tomb for three days. Now he is risen and he is in his post-resurrected body which is very similar to his body that was on earth, but it's slightly different. There's some variation there. But all of a sudden, we see Jesus not only performing miracles in his lifetime, but now we see Jesus performing miracles post-resurrection. And so as we pick up tonight, it's important for us to understand that Jesus has already made several appearances to, uh, he appeared to Mary Magdalene, he appeared to other women, he appeared to the disciples, and just uh, before all this takes place, Jesus appears to the disciples along with Thomas, and Thomas reaches his hand in the flesh of Jesus. And then in a moment, Jesus talks to his boys. They're all in Jerusalem. All of this is taking place in Jerusalem, and he tells them at the end of Matthew, he says, now what I want you to do is I want you to get the brothers, and I want you to go north to Galilee. And so after all of these events taking place primarily in Jerusalem, now all of a sudden we find ourselves about 50, 60, 70 miles to the north in Galilee. And this is where the scripture picks up in verse one. The Bible says, after Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other disciples were there together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said to him, we'll go with you. So they went out and they got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, this is John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He said to Peter, it is the Lord. 
And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped in the water. The, the most accurate translation doesn't say he jumped in the water, but he dove in the water in, with a sense of urgency. The other disciples followed Peter in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, only about 100 yards. And when they had landed, they saw a fire burning or excuse me, a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you had just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore, which was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was still not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. I can't wait for the day that Jesus looks at me and says, Corey, come and have breakfast. Corey, come, the, the marriage supper, the, come have supper with me. I look so forward to that. Jesus said to him, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples, though, dared ask him, who are you? For they knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had appeared to these disciples after he had been raised from the dead. Now, Lord, we are gonna need a miracle tonight. I'm going to need your serious help to get through all that needs to be said tonight, but I'm trusting in your Holy Spirit that things I need to leave out will be left out, and your Spirit, which is our teacher, will teach us everything that we need to know here in these next few minutes. So we ask you to bless the reading of your word, bless our time together, and your faithful people in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen. John is a brilliant writer. He is so far ahead of his time. He's writing this in the late 90s AD, not the 1990s, but the 90s, the singular 90s. He's writing these in the 90s. He is so far ahead of his time on a literary scale. And there are some interesting things as I read, I kind of pick out and I want to share with you. Um, John, as he's writing his gospel, he does this really nifty trick where he creates these bookends at the beginning of the gospel and then near the end of his gospel. Um, for instance, Nathaniel, one of the disciples, he's mentioned in the first chapter of John, but he's not mentioned again until the very last chapter of John. Poor Nathaniel. Don't you feel bad for guys like that? But, but he's mentioned at the beginning and then at the end. Earlier in the Gospels, we see Jesus, and he calls out to Peter and some of the other disciples, and he uses the phrase, come follow me. Three years pass, Jesus never utters that phrase again until the last chapter of John when Jesus is talking to Peter and they're reminiscing and he reminds Peter, I've called you to come and follow me. He uses the same phrase. It's almost as if in the beginning of John, there's this declaration in John chapter one where John talks about Jesus as the word of God who is God and was God and he was in the beginning with God. All these things, he is making this declaration that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is is not only the son of God, but Jesus is God. And then John takes the next 19 chapters and he gives us proofs to prove his original declaration. Jesus is divine. He is more than just a mere man or good teacher. And he gives us these miracles and these teachings, these proofs that Jesus is divine. And then in the closing chapters of John, John records the moment when Thomas, after he has just put his hand in the flesh of Jesus, where Thomas makes this declaration, my Lord 
and my God. So as if, if John says, look, Jesus is God and here is all the proofs. And then he wraps it up by Thomas's declaration of saying, yeah, I told you. He's not just Lord, but he is God. It's a phenomenal uh, way of writing in which John does. He's, he's really good about toggling between the divinity of Jesus and helping us understand that Jesus was definitely divine, but he also does an incredible job of helping us understand that Jesus was fully man also, that he was very human in this life. He is just a brilliant, brilliant writer. But probably what I love most about John is that he's a funny guy. He, he, there's, there's a humor that his writings possess that you don't really find in a lot of the, the other gospels. Um, John speaks of himself in third person. He doesn't call himself John, though. He gives himself a nickname, right? If I were going to choose a nickname, it would be something like Cool Guy Corey or something. I don't know what it would be. But John chooses this nickname to call himself by, and he uses the name the disciple whom Jesus loved. And at certain times throughout the gospel, you'll see him just kind of slide that in there as he is edifying the person that's doing the work. He's edifying himself, but he's using the phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved. There's one part after the resurrection, the ladies come and they, they tell the boys, they say, the Lord is risen. You've got to go to the tomb. You've got to go see. And the Bible says, John's writing, and he says, the disciple whom Jesus loved and Peter, they, they, they scurried along and they ran as fast as they could. And then at a certain point, the disciple whom Jesus loved outran Peter and arrived at the tomb first, right? And so he has this, it would be like me, okay? It would be like me writing a memoir of my experience here on staff at Christian Life, right? And I may write about how incredible of a pastor that, you know, Pastor Justin is and how anointed Pastor Glenn's worship is. But then I may put, but, but the staff member whom Pastor Chitty loved, <laughs> da, 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 you know, it would be very similar to something like that. And at which we would all look and we would kind of grin. It reminds me a little bit of Moses as Moses pins uh, the book of Numbers, Right? In chapter 12, just at almost, almost seemingly out of the blue, Moses just adds this little side note. He says, now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone on the face of the earth. Now these are still, this is still the inspiration of the spirit. I'm just saying I can appreciate humor in writing. It doesn't always have to be dry and boring. And so as incredible as John is in his writing style, he's very skilled in it all. It seems he's very educated in this. John does something phenomenal that most of the other gospel writers do not do. At the very closing of chapter 20, what John does is he makes this almost, it's almost like a thesis statement. If you've ever been to, you know, university or graduate school, especially, you have to write, you always have to focus in on this thesis statement. They beat it in your head. It's got to be good. You've got to talk about what you're talking about. What problem are you answering? What is the question you're answering? And they beat that in your head. And John, so far ahead of his time, in John chapter 20, this is what he says. He gives us the whole purpose for all the miracles, all the teachings, everything that he's written. He says, this is why I've written it. 
He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. He says, listen, it's all good. The, the miracles are amazing. The teachings are amazing. But if that's all that they are, you're missing the whole point. What they are leading to is an understanding for you to realize that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world and thus the only Savior of the world. So he's drawing our attention to Jesus being divine, but he's also inviting us into relationship with Christ. He says you need to realize that Jesus is God, but by believing in him, you also can share in this eternal life with God. And so John is a phenomenal writer in all that he does. When we get to this particular miracle, it's definitely an interesting miracle. It's a miracle that involves wildlife, um, which, is, which is kind of peculiar that Jesus would finish out his ministry here on earth with animals. But what we find is that it's not just a miracle that Jesus performs in John chapter 21, okay? What we find in the gospel of Luke is that early on in Jesus's ministry, he does a very similar, it's almost a mere reflection of the miraculous catch that he does in John chapter 21. And there would be people who say, well, maybe they're the same event and they're just seen from a different perspective. But, but there's no reason to believe that when you read them in context, it's very clear that the first miraculous catch of fish, it happens early in Jesus's ministry. He uses it as, as a moment to convince people to follow him. And then in John chapter 21, it's very, very clear that this is after the resurrection, that, uh, you know, they're very two, two very different events. But the question comes up, why then would the Lord choose to duplicate a ministry? He's all powerful. He can do anything that he wants. Why would he choose to duplicate this? And the only thing that I can come up with is the rationale that maybe Jesus was helping the disciples remember the original call that they had placed on his life. Again, maybe it's one of these bookend things and maybe there was a sense of nostalgia attached to it where the boys would remember, oh, that is for the purpose in which I was called. And perhaps it was, it was rejuvenating uh, to them. Who knows? There are a lot of commentators that are, that are critical, especially uh, there's one that I like to read because he's so good, but he is definitely not Pentecostal. His name is, is Barclay, and he would even say that um, this doesn't even need to be considered a miracle. He, he's convinced that um, uh, all throughout ancient times that people would stand on the shore oftentimes while fishermen would be in boats and the people on the shore for whatever reason could see where the fish were when the person on the boat couldn't see where they, I don't, I don't know, that sounds pretty miraculous to me. But anyway, he, they could see where the fish were when the people in the boat couldn't see and they would be like a, a shore spotter and they would stand on the shore and they would say, no, throw your nets over here, whatever. He is convinced that this is the case. But as a Christian believer, it's hard for me as I look, as I look all throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, this is not the first time that we see God intervene with wildlife to accomplish his purposes. Um, 
we remember way early on in Genesis as Noah builds his ark that the Spirit of God moves animals, perhaps from all across the world, to partner up together and to make their way to Noah's ark. Um, when, the, when the plagues, the 10 plagues descend on Egypt, um, there are frogs involved, there are insects involved, lice, all these different kind of things that God is using to accomplish his purposes. Uh, we see Elijah. Uh, we, you remember he's, he's sitting by the brook and the Bible says that ravens came and fed him. They just like dropped Chick-fil-A off right in his lap. It was amazing. Jonah, as, as Jonah is plunged into the sea, the Bible says that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Elisha, there's some little punk kids who were mocking Elisha for being bald, right? And what does the Lord do? Two female bears come from out of the woods and they ravage these boys. They kill these boys, right? There are time and time again all throughout scripture from Daniel and Lion's Den, just, just go on and on and on, that God has used wildlife to accomplish his purposes. And so my argument, I would contend, how can we say that this is not a miraculous moment when the, with the Son of God involved, but we can say that the angels of the Lord shut the mouths of the lions and the lion's den and called that a miraculous happening, but not this. It almost seems to contradict itself. And so I would suggest that this indeed is a miracle, Jesus' final miracle before the ascension. And it also, what we're going to find, is that not only was it a miraculous moment, but the miracle has a lot, a lot of meaning in it tonight. And so we're going to go ahead and jump in. Uh, I want to talk to you tonight about six different things that this miracle reveals to us about God. Number one is this, the miracle reveals Jesus's coming and going is unknown and imminent. That is a lot of words. Okay, don't get lost in the words. This is basically what I'm trying to say that these disciples, as they are fishing, they have no idea when Jesus is going to come. They have no idea. It, it, has been, it has been, you know, close to two months now, and Jesus has shown up at certain times, and then he's gone, and then he shows up again, and then he's gone again. These disciples have no idea the coming and the going. This is why Jesus said, look, the Spirit of God, he's like the wind. Nobody knows when he's going to blow. Nobody knows from which direction he's going to blow. And Jesus, after his res resurrection, he operates in very much the same way. And so for us, this is what I would say. What that means to us is that as we encounter the living God, we oftentimes cannot predict when God is going to show up in a concentrated way in our lives. We know that, that Jesus is going to come from time to time, but it's unknown when he's going to come. But we do have this anticipation that it's imminent, especially as Scripture says, when we gather together, that the Spirit of God is going to descend on us. We don't know exactly when that's going to happen, but we anticipate that imminent moment when the concentrated presence of God is going to come. Now, I need to set that in one category when we talk about the coming and going of Jesus. And I want to kind of talk about a parallel that we see in the coming and going of Jesus. But I want to relate this to the second coming of Christ. Okay, I'm not talking about in our daily lives, the, the coming and going of the spirit of the disciples in this moment. 
there are some things that happen in these moments with this miracle that very much parallel our anticipation for the return of Jesus, okay? So there are a couple of factors that we see that, that are kind of similar. The disciples, they see Jesus, but they don't really recognize Jesus. The Bible makes it clear when Christ comes, there will be some that see but do not perceive and then there will be some who see and perceive. There will be some that see him and they know ultimately that he is Christ and he has come. There's a waiting factor that's at play. Again, you're talking about Jesus roamed the earth for 40 days, the Bible says, right? So Jesus is roaming the earth, but they weren't really sure what day is he going to show up and meet with us while he could be meeting with other people. The waiting factor for us is that we have been waiting for two millennia, 2,000 years for the coming of the Lord. But perhaps one of the most impressive parallels that we see here is what I call the Peter factor. It is, it is what I call the factor of actively waiting for the Lord to appear, okay? Now, let me take a step back and just say, I know that there is a lot of discussion among especially critical scholars who wonder why Jesus went back to fishing. There are a lot of people I've heard a ton of sermons, and I'm not even saying they're wrong. I'm, I'm not building a case for either of these views, but I am saying there are two particular views as to why Jesus went back to fishing. The first one is that most, many people believe that Jesus had backslidden, that Jesus, remember when Jesus, or excuse me, when Jesus was arrested, that Peter denies Christ three times, that he curses the Lord, that he just goes on this rampage. Some people believe that that was the beginning of his backsliding, and it just continued on all the way to John chapter 21. Now, there are some, some reasons, symbolic reasons. I wouldn't say there are any definitive reasons. There are some symbolic reasons that, that affirm that view, right? So we see uh, Peter in the beginning, he is fishing for fish. Jesus calls him out of that lifestyle and says, no, now you're going to fish for men. And then all of a sudden, we see Jesus go back, and now he's fishing for fish again. And some people would suggest that Peter turned his back on the call that Jesus had for him. He was, he was in rebellion, that he was going back to his old lifestyle. That's a valid, a, a valid assumption, but again, it's an assumption. Another um, reason that a person may uh, uh, think that is because Jesus, uh, or excuse me, Peter, just like beforehand in Luke 5, they toiled all night fishing, but they had no success until Jesus showed up. Well, here in John chapter 21, they have no success at almost. Some may uh, come to the conclusion that God was not going to bless their work because they were in rebellion against God. Again, I'm not saying that's not the case that Peter, he may have been backslidden in this moment. I'm not really sure. There are cases that can be built for that. But I will say this, if we're going to buy in to the idea that Peter was backslidden, then we have to tie the other six disciples with Peter that they were all backslidden because Peter's the one that said, I'm going fishing and the rest of them said, I'm going with you, okay? So if we're going to associate Peter with backsliding, which may be the truth, we have to take the other six disciples along with him because they were doing the same thing that he was doing. However, what I wanna suggest 
is there may be a probability that Peter wasn't really backslidden at this point. He needed restoration that we'll talk about in a few minutes. He needed to restore his relationship with the Lord. But it wasn't necessarily a backslidden, rebellious situation. But perhaps Peter was just actively waiting for the imminent return of the Lord. In, in the sense of, I don't know when Jesus is going to show up. But when he shows up, I don't want to be sitting on the shore twiddling my thumbs. I want to be actively waiting as I do this. Now, now consider this. Peter, you're talking 40 days. You're talking over a month now that Jesus had, had died and now he's risen from the grave. These men have to eat. These men got to feed their families, right? And, and we don't know much about Peter's family. We know he has a mom and a mother in, or a wife and a mother-in-law. Okay, maybe his wife was like his mom. I don't know. But we know that he had a wife. Too many wives are like that. Okay, we know he had a wife. And we know he had a mother-in-law, okay? These women have to eat. Peter is a responsible leader. And so perhaps it wasn't that he was turning his back on God. Perhaps he was just turning to responsibility and saying, if a man doesn't work, then a man doesn't eat. So I need to get to work. Regardless of what it is, I would suggest that if Peter is actively waiting for the return of the Lord, like in his context, for Jesus to show up whenever he would choose to show up. And if we are here 2,000 years later waiting on the imminent return of Jesus and we don't know when it's gonna happen, that we need to take the same posture as Peter and actively be waiting for the Lord's return, not sitting on the sidelines doing nothing. We need to be a people who are working for the kingdom while we're waiting for the kingdom. Does that make sense? I'm gonna give you a quick little spoiler so if you've never seen this movie, please just run out screaming and we'll all know why. I love the movie Shawshank Redemption. Top five favorite movies of all time. Love it. I would not recommend watching the unrated, unedited version though, okay? I'm just throwing that out there. I did that one time, it was a big mistake. Watch the TV version. In Shawshank, there, there is, the story goes, there's the main character, his name is Andy Dufresne, and he's a banker, he's been accused of slaughtering his wife and her lover. He's, he's framed for the murder, gets a life sentence, and he goes to this prison, Shawshank, and the whole movie is about this. What you find out at the end of the movie, that throughout the entire movie, unbeknownst to those watching, the audience, that Andy Dufresne was digging his way out of the prison. All of these years, these 20, 30 years, he was digging his way out of the prison. But what's interesting is that even though at the end of the movie, you realize that, that it wasn't just like there was a day where he broke through and he ran through. He was very methodical. His freedom was secure. He had dug a hole. He had had a way of escape. He was going to get out. His hope of freedom was secure. He knew that it was going to happen. But even throughout all of this time where he knew that he was going to be free, he knew that he was going to escape, all throughout this time, he is still working to help people in the prison with him. He's not sitting there just focused on himself or his plan or his life or whatever. While he is waiting for his escape, while he's waiting for his ultimate freedom, he's helping his friends all along through the movie. And I would suggest to us that as we wait for our ultimate hope in the return of Christ, as we sit back and we wait and we say, Lord, our, our hope is secure. We know that you're coming for us. We are signed, sealed, and sanctified. We know that we are going to heaven. 
But while we wait, we're going to be working. Because when the Lord does appear, we want to be found as faithful servants, not sideline servants. Amen? And so I think that there are some parallels, but regardless of the parallels, the miracle reveals that we can never really know the coming or the going of God in any given moment. Number two, the miracle reveals that Jesus is always present even when we feel abandoned. These seven disciples were probably emotionally all over the place. They were probably annoyed. They were probably frustrated. They were probably at some point confused. And probably to some degree, they had felt abandoned by the Lord. But the reality is, in this moment, it paints such a beautiful picture that as they're doing their everyday life, where is Jesus? He's on the shore and he's watching. He's overseeing them and he has a plan for them. He's calling them. He's wooing them. He is right there with them, even in the midst of their assumed frustration in the same way that he's with us in our frustration and in our confusion, in our hurt, and our annoyance, and our feelings of abandonment, the Lord reminds us of a promise in Matthew 28. He says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Number three, the miracle reminds us, or reveals to us, that Jesus blesses our faith and our obedience to his words. You can imagine what Peter probably felt when they were fishing on this side of the boat all night and Jesus says, no, cast your nets over here, six feet on the other side of the boat, cast your nets over here, and all of a sudden there's so many fish you can't pull up. You didn't get one fish all night and all of a sudden you can't even pull it up. There's, there's too many fish. You can imagine the frustration that Peter might have felt in that moment, but the reality the reality is simply this, is that Peter's success was not the width of the boat. It, it, his success was not found in the left side or the right side. That was not, that, that's not the point. The point is that Peter's success was found in obeying what Jesus told him to do. And in the moment that he obeyed what Jesus told him to do, there was miraculous provision for him. And so I suggest that true success in the spirit realm, in the kingdom of God, true success, whether it looks like it or not in the natural, true kingdom success is faith and obedience to what God asks us to do. As Moses dies just on this side of the promised land, Joshua is going to lead millions of a new generation into the promised land. And the Lord, just beforehand, the Lord gives Joshua this pep talk. And he talks to Joshua and he says, Joshua, if you want to be successful in this, let me tell you, let me guide you, let me show you how to do. And in Joshua 1.8, this is what the Lord says to Joshua. He says, keep this book of the law always on your lips. The book of the law is the Bible. He was saying, keep the written word of God always on your lips 
Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written on it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Now, I don't know the last time that you've read the book of Joshua, but there were moments where it did not in the natural feel successful for Joshua. There were some battles that were lost. We find that there was sin in the camp, right, is partly the cause of it. But for Joshua, he had no lot in that. He was doing what he knew to do, but in the natural, it didn't always look at it, but it doesn't remove us from the fact that because he was operating in faith and obedience, Joshua was experiencing the blessing of heaven. He was experiencing true success. In our lives, we, we see the same principle with, with, with the tithe or with the Sabbath or a number of other things. And it's this idea that even though it doesn't make sense in the natural, even though it doesn't maybe sometimes look like success in the natural, my obedience and my faith to the word of God is going to bear fruit at some point. The reality is that God can work in my six days more than he can work in my seven days. That God can work more with my 90% than he can work with my 100%. And it doesn't make sense to the natural mind. It's very offensive to the natural mind. It's very frustrating to the natural mind. But again, faith is frustrating to that which is natural. And so we understand that Jesus blesses our faith and he blesses our obedience to his work. Number four, are y'all moving? Y'all moving with me? I know we're, we're, we're clicking here. We're going quick. Okay, number four is this. The miracle reveals that Jesus wants to bless us in abundance at times. Jesus wants to bless us in abundance at times. There are a thousand different uh, scholars, early church fathers that have all kind of different views about why, why did John list 153 fish? That's very specific. Why did he do that? And you got Augustine, you got Jerome, you've got all these guys and they have some super bizarre calculations and they're saying, well, this number means this. And if you add and then divide and separate the square root and they're, they're making all this stuff. And I'm like, uh, okay, maybe, maybe this is what you're trying to say. But at the end of the day, we don't know why God blessed them with 153 fish outside of the fact that Jesus just wanted to bless them with abundance. And it wasn't just 153 fish. There were seven fishermen. If they had 10 people in their family, they couldn't have eaten 153 fish. This was an abundant blessing that these men were going to be able to take and sell these fish and to provide for their families. And Jesus just wanted them to be blessed. You think about your children. Sometimes you just want to be good to your kids. No reason. They didn't earn anything. They didn't do anything right. Peter just cussed about Jesus. And the Lord steps in and he says, but I just want to bless. just want to love on you a little bit. And so as we, as we look at this, it's, it's important to understand that God isn't opposed to prosperity. Now, now uh, let me say this. I think that God is opposed to the prosperity gospel, and I am vehemently opposed to the prosperity gospel. But the idea of prosperity is a God-given treasure. When you look all throughout scripture, Abraham was incredibly wealthy. David, Solomon, Esther, 
you go on and on. Now, there, there, there were plenty of people that were poor, and there were plenty of people that were middle class, but there were also plenty of people that were, that were wealthy, and God had prospered them in everything that their hand had touched. So God isn't opposed to prosperity. I think that what God is, like, this is the way I like to say it. I don't think the question we should ask is, is, is God opposed to the money that I hold? The question that should be asked is, is God opposed to the money holding me? There's a difference when I hold something and when something holds me. And that makes all the difference in the world. But God wants to bless his children. Don't be afraid to receive the blessing of the Lord. A, a, a few weeks ago, I was uh, talking to somebody and all this kind of stuff, and they, they, they shared me, they said, uh, they said um, you know, in the beginning, I didn't want to receive the blessing. I was like, no, I don't want to receive this. I don't want to receive this. And ultimately, I just said, you know what? God wants to do it. And I thought to myself, I thought, man, I know there have been a thousand times where I've thought, I don't want to receive a blessing. You know, I'm not, I haven't earned this or I'm not worth it. Listen to me. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. If he wants to bless even through other people, let him bless through them. Receive. And listen, don't just receive. Don't be, don't be a dead-end street. Be a causeway. Be, be somebody that's a conduit. And when the blessing of God fills your life, fill the blessing of God with other, other people's lives with the blessing. And so God isn't opposed to it. As a matter of fact, sometimes he just wants to bless us in abundance. Number five is this, that the miracle reveals that Jesus is Lord over all things. Throughout this teaching, we have seen Jesus conquer sickness, nature, animals, death, hell, and the grave. He is Lord over all. But sixth and finally, and, and perhaps most importantly out of everything we've talked about tonight, this miracle reveals Jesus's desire for restoration, okay? I don't want to take away from the miracle. It is truly a miraculous thing. Whether Jesus used his omniscience, his all-knowing power, and said that's where the fish are, or whether he used, you know, his, his all-powerfulness and created fish or sent the fish there, However he did it, it was truly a miraculous event that happened. I don't want to take away from that. But the fish were not the purpose of the miracle. The purpose of the miracle was to bring Peter specifically, to bring Peter close so that Peter could be restored back to his fullness. Now, this is obviously very this is hugely important for Peter, right, to be restored. This is hugely important for him. But this is equally important for the readers of Scripture in the years to come. Uh, track with me here. In John 20, Peter is still estranged. 18, 19, 20, Peter is still estranged from the Lord. He's just denied. He's just cussed. He's just ran around. He is estranged from the Lord in John chapter 20. All of a sudden, in Acts chapter 1, Peter's elevated to a leadership status in the church. God's using him mightily all throughout the first part. Of, I know that Paul gets a lot of attention in the book of Acts, but you've got to realize the first half of the book of Acts, Peter's the man. Like, he is, he is the most influential person in the new church. And so you've got this situation where Peter is ostracized, and then all of a sudden Peter's elevated. Chapter 21 
is the missing link that we didn't have. None of the other gospel writers write about the restoration of Peter. It's only found in John chapter 21. And so as we read this, what we find is that Jesus is not only looking to forgive people, but he is looking to restore people. There's a difference, okay? There is a difference between those things. Forgiveness for Peter was accomplished at the cross, but the restoration of Peter was not accomplished until later in a personal, individual moment with Peter. Now, forgiveness is the low bar. Restoration is the high bar, okay? Let me, let me make sense of this, or try to at least. Sometimes, well, let me just say this. Restoration of a relationship should always be the goal. It should always, when there's sin, when you've been sinned against or sinned against someone, the restoration of the relationship should always be the goal. But before you get to restoration, you've got to go through forgiveness, then restoration. You've got to go through these layers, okay? Now, sometimes the best that we can do, though, is forgiveness. Sometimes there doesn't need to be a relationship restored. For instance, if you or your children or your grandchildren have ever been molested by someone, that relationship does not need to be restored. Does that make sense? There needs to be forgiveness because we all, like sheep, have gone astray and sinned against the Lord. But forgiveness may be as much as we need to do in that moment. The restoration of that relationship may never need to happen. So are you following me? Most, in most situations though, the restoration of a relationship is possible. But there are some times where forgiveness is as far as we can go and, and I'll say even as far as we should go, okay? And so what I would say to us is, is simply this. On a personal, practical application level, is simply this. Is that all of us experience hurt, trauma, all of us sin against others, and all of us are sinned against by others. If you are human, you are susceptible. If you are human, it's going to happen to you. How we deal with that makes all the difference in the world to not only the, the joy that we have and the freedom that we have in the Lord, but also relationally with one another, it makes all the difference in the world. And so I would simply just ask a couple of questions of, of all of us. And I think we need to ask these questions often of ourselves. Is there a conversation of forgiveness and or restoration that needs to be had? And this may just be a simple, I mean, it can be super simple or super complex depending on the situation, but is it something that, and we have to obey our consciences in, in this. Have I maybe slightly even thought that I've offended somebody and maybe I just need to shoot them a text and say, man, listen, I know I said this. I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. Please forgive me, whatever. Um, or it could be a very serious situation where you say, you know, this person has hurt me They've, they've intentionally sinned against me and I probably need to have a sit-down conversation with this person. I probably need to be able to look them in the eye. There are some situations you say, I could never look that person in the eye 
and maybe I need to involve a third party or maybe I need to do something creative um, in order to make things right. Maybe I need to write a letter to somebody. Maybe I need to send an email. I can't tell you how many times. <laughs> that sounds horrible. <laughs> it's not that many times. But there have, been, there have been a number of times where I've just, I've thought whether it's distance that restricts me or whether, whatever the case may be, whether they don't want to talk to me, I don't want to talk to them or whatever. Um, there have been times where I've sat and I've drafted letters, handwritten letters and just, um, and, and put them in the mail. Um, I think that what oftentimes blocks I think sometimes we can deceive ourselves into thinking that everything's fine. But sometimes in the back of our mind, we're like, is it? And then we maybe get around that person or those people and they don't act like anything's wrong. And so naturally we don't act like anything is wrong. And so we just kind of put it in the back of our mind and say, well, everything must be fine. Well, just because a person doesn't act like anything's bothering them doesn't mean that anything's bothering them. Sometimes that's just called maturity. And there's sometimes that we need to really take a step back and we need to say, do I need to go through these layers? Do I need to ask for forgiveness? Do I need to try to restore the relationship? Do I need to try these things to make sure that the, that the pathway is, is clear? Jesus made it very clear, we are to love God and we are to love others. And if there is a problem here, like for Pastor Justin and I, if there is a horizontal problem here, then there is a vertical problem here, right? There, there's, there is some level of hindrance. Paul said you need to work at being at peace with all people, right? And so when he says work, that is not a passive word. It is an active word. And he's saying you need to intentionally make sure that you are at peace with all people. The frustrating thing is that's messy, that is so messy, and it always doesn't turn out the way that we want it to. And sometimes one conversation turns into a half dozen conversations. And sometimes people act dumb. And sometimes people pile offense on top of offense, and it hurts even more. But our responsibility, Paul would call us those who reconcile. Those reconcilers, those restorers. Not, forgiveness is the baseline, and it's, it's the most important but, but, the, but the best end result is a true restoration of relationship. I love you all so very much. And I want to thank you for being so faithful through these last eight weeks in this series. I'm very much looking forward to Pastor Series starting next week. And then Pastor Justin has a series in August. And I'll be back with you in September. But I love you so very much. Let me pray for you as you go. Father, we bless you tonight. Father, I want to thank you that, that we can move beyond forgiveness to true restoration in relationships. And I thank you, Lord, that you provided the way. It's only through the cross of Christ that we can do that. And I thank you for the pathway that you've cleared. And I want to pray for my brothers and sisters, spiritual moms and spiritual dads in this room. And I just want to pray that you will once again endue us with your power to do what's right, to make uh, forgiveness possible to make restoration whole. Give us wisdom, surround us with people who will guide us, help us not to be uh, ill-timed, but help us to be led of your spirit in all that we do. We will bless you, I bless your people tonight. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.